The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, for the uh, past couple of weeks before the, the holidays, we were taking a look at our responsibility uh, before the Lord, our responsibility to our fellow believer, and uh, today we'll take a look at our responsibility before the unbelieving world. And uh, for that, we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 10. And we're going to take a look at one of the best known and most beloved stories in all of Scripture. And it'll also give us uh, some help in personal evangelism. Uh, This story is simple, it's memorable, it's convicting, and the truth that it teaches us is profound. And it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Numerous hospitals have been named after the Good Samaritan. Uh, Various missions organizations take their name from the story of the Good Samaritan. And when society wants to speak of an extraordinary demonstration of kindness Selflessness, you'll often hear the title, Good Samaritan, used of the one who made the sacrifice for the benefit of others. And whether people read their Bibles or not, most people are familiar with the title Good Samaritan, and many people could retell the story of the Good Samaritan to some degree. And we all know the story, right? Some poor guy falls among thieves, he's left for dead, and the people that you would most expect to help him pass by And the people that, or the person that you would least expect to help him stops. And there's just this irony in it all. And one of the common techniques that Jesus used when he was telling stories was this element of surprise. An unexpected twist that would leave the audience going home reeling. And, uh, you know, these people who would have heard the story here, you know, would have said, can you believe it that it was the Samaritan out of all people who helped this man? Jesus was just this master storyteller, and he would have left a lasting impression on those who heard it then and still leaves a lasting impression on us today. And there's so many lessons that we can learn from the story of the Good Samaritan. Uh, We're convicted by the compassion of the Samaritan and our failure to love in this way. Uh, We see that sin is not just what we do, but sin is what we fail to do. It's not just the sins of commission, it's the sins of omission. We see the hypocrisy and false religion exposed as religious people fail to take care of a person's need that was obvious and right in front of them. And we're challenged to imitate the the love that we see demonstrated in this illustration. And the list could go on, but this is a story. This Good Samaritan, it's a story that's really not primarily about any of those things. And if these are the only lessons that we walk away from the story of the, the Good Samaritan with... You know, if all we walk away from the story is, you know, like a good neighbor, I should be there. If, if, if that's all that you walk away from the story with, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. And what I want to show you from this text is that none of us are good enough to be considered a good Samaritan. In fact, being a good Samaritan wasn't the point that Jesus was trying to make. It's not why he brought this illustration up. It wasn't the point. But let's turn back to Luke chapter 10 and allow the narrative to make the point for us itself. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, and you can follow with me as I read. It says, And the lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down on that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. 
and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for this passage of Scripture. Father, we are encouraged by your word, but Father, we're also convicted by your word. And Father, I pray that as we come to your word today, that you would allow your word to do its work, whether it's the, uh, the work of comfort, the work of conviction. Now, Father, I pray that you, you would speak and that you would speak clearly through your word. And Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What's often overlooked in this parable of the Good Samaritan is the context in which the story arose in the first place. How does verse 25 read. It says, and a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the concern that Jesus is addressing in this parable. And it's the most important concern that is raised in all of scripture. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's no more important question that could ever be asked by anyone ever since sin entered into the world and death through sin, this has been an undeniable concern of mankind because death has been an undeniable and universal reality for all of mankind. The pattern of Genesis 5 is still true for us even until this day. We live, we have children, and we die. We live, we have children, and we die. And we return to the dust. And that's where we're all heading. Genesis 3.19 says, For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Moses, the author of Psalm 90, uses the same metaphor in Psalm 90. In verse 3, he says, You return man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. We're not just compared to dust. David and Isaiah compare mankind to grass. Doesn't really get much better. (laughs) Psalm 103, verse 15, David says, As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. You know, you may have a a seat reserved for you at the table, uh, but that seat won't remain unoccupied for long. After a while, your place is remembered no longer. Isaiah 40, verse 6, it says, A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. Isaiah 40 and verse 24 says, Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. They barely get their roots down into the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them all away like stubble. Then James compares your life to a vapor. James 4 and verse 14 says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Just like the, the steam that rises from the cup, rises from the pot, quickly disappears as the heat escapes, and all of us one day are going to grow cold, literally. We're all going to go cold. We're the dust that's going to return to the earth. We're the grass that eventually is going to weather. We're the vapor that will eventually vanish away. So the most important question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I know I'm going to die physically, but do I have to die eternally? Job asked the the question in this way, Job 14, 14. If a man dies, will he live again? Is this it? I know that my physical life has to come to an end, but does that mean that I come to a complete end? And he goes on and he says this, all the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. There there has to be more than this. And we know that this can't be the end. Even if you haven't read the Bible before, you know within your own heart that this can't be all that there is. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, it says, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. 
We're not created to die, and we know that within our own selves. I'm, I'm not meant to die. And this lawyer came to Jesus, and he would have known that. Not only because he was created in the image of God with eternity in his heart, but he would have known this from the Old Testament scriptures. Eternal life is not just a promise of the New Testament. It's a promise of the Old Testament. As far back as Genesis 5, you have that cycle. You know, he lived, he begat, he died. He lived, he begat, he died. Then there's this ray of light in verse 24, Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. There's hope in that. Death is not all that there is. There's hope of life in the midst of death. We find that same kind of hope that's told to us in the experience of Elijah. 2 Kings 2.11, Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. There's a ray of hope. There's more to life than this. Daniel speaks about those who lie in the dust of the ground. Daniel 12 and verse 2, he says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's this promise of a forever life. I want to have a part of that life, that forever life. The Psalms are filled with this promise of eternal life. It's actually amazing how many times the Psalms come back to this theme of eternal life. Psalm 16, 11, you will make me know, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, at your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Forevermore. Psalm 21, verse 4, he asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. Psalm 23, verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. How long? Forever. Psalm 41, verse 12, As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. Psalm 73, verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail. I might die. My flesh and my heart may fail. My heart may stop beating. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My physical heart may stop, but there's something that's eternal that will continue. And you are my portion forever. So when this lawyer approaches Jesus with his concern about eternal life, he would have known about this life from the Old Testament scriptures. But there was something that still nagged him about the life to come. He wasn't sure that he would inherit that eternal life that he read about. He wasn't convinced that heaven belonged to him. How do I avoid the disgrace and everlasting contempt that Daniel speaks about? And how do I enjoy the path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore that the scriptures speak of? How do I get that? And what's shocking about this encounter is that we're talking about somebody who is at the top of the religious food chain. We're talking about a lawyer and when we think about a lawyer, we think about, you know, somebody who's an expert in criminal or judicial law, but the lawyers of the Gospels were experts in the law of God, the Scriptures. Another name for lawyers are scribes, name that we're familiar with, professional students of the law, teachers of the law, considered experts in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Sanhedrin, which was the, the ruling body of the, the Jewish people, they referred to the scribes for legal decisions. They, they, they farmed that out because the scribes were the ones who knew the minutest details of the law. They, they, they examined the law. They scrutinized the Bible for scribal errors to make sure that we've got everything right. They counted it forward, backwards, counted up the letters. They, they knew the law. There were Jewish leaders responsible for preserving, studying, applying the law of God to every situation. But as much as he knew and as well as respected as this lawyer was, he still had this nagging question about his eternity. I'm still not sure. Does that describe anybody in here? You know a lot about the Bible. You have a respectable life. Look great on the outside. But inside, there's still this nagging question. Do I have eternal life? Is it well with my soul? That was this lawyer. And he comes to Jesus with his question, teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Even this well-respected teacher of the law recognized that something is wrong. Recognized Jesus of somebody who was worthy of testing, thoroughly examining for this question. 
And even he gives Jesus the title teacher. You know, here's the teacher of the law, and he's coming to Jesus and saying, hey, you're a teacher. Can you teach me? Now, we don't know if he was completely humble in all this, and actually we'll find out later that he wasn't. But at least he comes to Jesus because he's interested. I'm curious. What, what do you have to say? He's kind of poking Jesus to see, like, what, what's going to come out of this question? This is one that's nagged us. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, what, what answer are you going to give to this question? By this time in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has already spent roughly three years teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's already encountered scribes, Pharisees numerous times, astonishing them with his wisdom. Even as a child, Jesus was found sitting in the midst of teachers in Jerusalem, listening and asking questions. In Luke, 24, or Luke 2 and 47, it says, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Even as a child, he was astonishing the teachers. And one of the subjects that Jesus spoke about was often eternal life. He often spoke about eternal life. And the scribes wanted to know, what did he teach about eternal life? On another occasion, Nicodemus, who was another leader and teacher of Israel, came to Jesus by night. And he says, Rabbi, John 3, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus says, that's not really what you're here to talk to me about. What, what you really want to know about is eternal life. So Jesus responds to the question in his mind. John 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I know what you really hear about. You really want to know about how can you get into the kingdom of God. That's really what you want to know about. So I'm going to answer the question that you have on your mind. You really want to know about eternal life. How do I get in on that eternal life? It was a common question that the teachers of Israel had. And this is the question that this lawyer brings to Jesus. And if you're looking for an outline for our passage today, it's two questions, an answer, and a command. Two questions, an answer, and a command. And that's the pattern that's repeated two times. Two questions, an answer, and a command. So first of all, we have this most important question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the most important question you could ever ask because you're all going to die. How do I get in on eternal life? And it's followed up by another question. You know, so you have the first question, how do I gain eternal life? It's followed up by another question, but this question leads us to the most impossible standard. Look at verse 26. It says, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And this is so typical of Jesus. He would often answer a question with another question. Like in Luke 20, in verse 1, you have uh, on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple, preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with the elders confronted him. And they said, what, by what authority are you doing these things? Who's giving you this authority? And then Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? It's like, okay, guys, break, let's huddle up. <laughs> they reason among themselves, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say for men, all the people will stone us to death because they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they came back to Jesus and said, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you where I get my authority from. Often answers questions with the question. And it's a great tool for personal evangelism. Great tool. If you ask enough questions, you allow the person to see the inconsistencies in their own logic. Like when somebody says, there are no absolutes. And you want to ask them, are you absolutely sure about that? Because <laughs> that's an absolute statement. Or like when somebody says, don't judge me. It's wrong to judge people. You are so wrong for judging me. So you're telling me that I'm wrong to tell people that they're wrong, but you're telling me that I'm wrong. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't reason consistently as an unbeliever. And you can't reason consistently in opposition to the scriptures. It has to break down at some point. So you just ask enough questions and eventually people will say, this, I'm not making sense here. I'm not making sense. So Jesus gives the lawyer the opportunity to answer his own question. He points the lawyer back to the same scriptures that he knew from childhood. He had it memorized. He analyzed it. He scrutinized it. He reasoned from the scriptures. But he reasoned in ways that were inconsistent with what he knew. But he gives an impressive answer. Look at verse 27. It says, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
According to the, the Pharisees, the law of God contained 613 separate laws. They broke that down into 248 positive commands, 365 negative commands. There was a well-known rabbinic distinction between the heavy and the light commandments of the law. All the law was binding, but there were certain commands that they considered to be more foundational commands that provided the, the underlying basis or the principles upon which the other laws were to be kept and obeyed. And they agreed that love for God and love for neighbor were the two most foundational commandments of the law. And they were right about it. Because Jesus said the same thing over in Matthew 22. You're right. Because if you love God, you won't place any other God before him. If you love God, you won't make yourself an idol. If you love God, you won't take his name in vain. If you love God, you'll set aside time to honor him and you'll obey him. And in the same way, if you love your neighbor, you won't murder your neighbor. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. You won't covet what belongs to your neighbor. So love for God and love for neighbor are the most foundational of all the commands. And they put together Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18 to say that these are the most foundational commands that, upon which all the others rest. It's the very same answer, like I said, Jesus gave when he was asked, what is the great commandment in the law? He gave the same response. Love for God, love for neighbor, most foundational of every other law. Matthew 22, 37 to 40, speak about that. Everything else hangs on that. In Romans 13, verse 10, it says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Galatians 5, 14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James calls it the law of liberty. If you can truly love you don't need all the other laws because you'll have everything else nailed down. If we truly love God and love neighbor, we don't need any other laws. And the scribes arrived at this right answer. So Jesus affirms the Lord. He says, you've, you've answered correctly. You got it right. And then he leaves them with this most impenetrable command. Verse 28, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. And you might find that in all caps in your Bible or marked off in some other way because that's a quotation from Leviticus 18.5. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Do this and you will live. Similar way in Ezekiel 20 verse 11. I gave them my statutes and informed them of my ordinances by which if a man observes them, he will live. And I call this the most impenetrable command because you can't get past this one. You can't get beyond it, you can't get under it, you can't get over it, you can't get through it. It's impenetrable, it stands right in the way between you and eternal life. Do this and you will live. And when Jesus is saying, do this and you will live, he's saying that if you can do this, you'll inherit eternal life. You will enter into the kingdom. Because that's what the lawyer is asking about, right? He's asking about eternal life. And he says, hey, if you can do this, you'll live. And if this lawyer was looking for what he could do, hey, you're on the right path. Do this, you'll live. You got the right directions. But there's a problem with that. There's no way that this lawyer could actually do what the law was telling him to do. That's the problem. Just like if I met a man out here on Joppa Road with a backpack and a GPS, and he says, I say, hey, you know, where, where are you going? He says, well, I've, I've never been to Hawaii before, and I'm hiking to Honolulu. You know, according to my GPS, it's 4,843 miles to the west. I say, yeah, you know what? You're right. <laughs> it is 4,843 miles to the west. But when you get past California, you might want to grab a wetsuit. Because it's going to be 2,558 miles underwater. <laughs> the GPS is correct. If you travel 4,843 miles to the west, you'll get to Honolulu. Uh, but uh, you're not going to be able to hike it. The directions are right but you can't accomplish it. And the law of God was like the GPS coordinates. And there's nothing wrong with the coordinates. Romans 7 verse 12 says, so then the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Romans 7 14 says, for we know that the law is spiritual. So what's the problem? It's not the problem with the law. The problem is with me. <laughs> I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. I can't accomplish that which the law tells me to do. That's the problem. It's mission impossible. I don't have the ability to do what the law says. It's like saying swim across the ocean or jump to the moon. You can't do it. But that's the path of works righteousness. James 2 verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point 
he's become guilty of all. So we all sit under the curse. Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You've got to do it all. If that's the way that you're going to go, you've got to do it all. Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Jeremiah eleven three, 3, cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant. If you're going to go that way, you've got to do it all. It's an impenetrable command. But instead of this lawyer saying, Lord, have mercy, <laughs> have mercy on me, the sinner. There's no way I could achieve this righteousness on my own. Surely there has to be another way. Instead of saying that, what does he say? Well, well, who is my neighbor? Who, who, who is my neighbor? It's just as if I told the hiker Honolulu is at least 2,500 miles across the Pacific underwater, and he says, well, where can I get that wetsuit again? Where, where, where can I get that? This man has no idea how short his arms are, how weak his legs are, how deep the ocean is. You have no clue. And instead of humbling himself, He's wishing to do what? Look at verse 29. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I, I, I think I can achieve it if, if you just kind of point me in the right way. I just need a little help. Totally jumped over the command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Totally jumped over that. I think I got that down. But if you could just like direct me to the right neighbor, and then maybe I can take care of this on my own. You know, all I really need to know is who my neighbors are. He just doesn't get it. And he asked the most imperceptive question. I need you to tell me who my neighbor is. And again, we have two questions, an answer and a command. You have the, the question from the, the lawyer. Can you, can you tell me who, who my neighbor is? And then following this, and this is, Jesus is about to ask a question, but he front loads it with this illustration. We have the story of the good Samaritan. But think about the context again. Jesus is trying to convince this lawyer that there's no way that he can inherit eternal life based on his righteousness. But how do we often use the story of the good Samaritan? We use it as an example to follow or the pathway to heaven. A number of years ago, I was in uh, Louisiana. I was helping with a short-term missions trip. We were helping out some Hurricane Katrina relief victims and uh, the organization that we worked with had a couple of Roman Catholic volunteers. And I asked one of the volunteers, how do you think you'll inherit eternal life? How do you think you'll inherit eternal life? And he says, you know what, that's a good question. But I think it's by what I'm doing right now. That, that if, if I help the poor, feed the hungry, provide relief for victims, you know, it's basically by being a good Samaritan that I'm hoping that I'll inherit eternal life. That's what he told me. I had the opportunity to share him that you're not good enough to be a good Samaritan. <laughs> That's not the way that God has made for you to go. It's, do you know how deep the ocean is? Do you know how, 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 how much you've done already to eliminate that as even being an option? Have you sinned once? <laughs> if you sin once, you're guilty of all. There's no way you can get there going that way. So let's take a quick look at the, the story. And here you have this impossible standard starting at verse 30. Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The journey from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho was a common trip, but it was a dangerous one. It was a common trip. The center of worship for the Jewish people was in Jerusalem, and three times a year, all the Jewish males were required to return to Jerusalem. Uh, they were required to come back at Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Booths. So it wasn't hard to imagine a Jewish traveler on this road from Jericho to Jerusalem or coming home from that trip. So it was a common trip, but it was also a dangerous trip. The descent from Jerusalem to Jericho is from 3,000 feet above sea level to 1,000 feet below sea level. It's a 17-mile hike through a desolate area surrounded by caves where bandits would hide out and pounce on travelers. You know, Jennifer and I have actually been to that road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it is desolate. I mean, all kinds of mountains. I mean, that was the one time when I was in Israel that I was actually fearful <laughs> because we were taking this bus, and like the, 
the road was so narrow and on either side of the road, I mean, you go straight down. And the driver took great delight in taking the turns as quick as he could to frighten everybody that was riding with him. And it was, it was it's like, okay, are, are we making it home? You know, like, what, what is, do, do we have that will written up? I mean, like, like, this might be it. I mean, just these precipices that just dropped you down, straight down. And this is where this traveler's traveling. It's down this same windy, desolate, dangerous road. And there's no help for miles around. And he's pounced on by these robbers. Lestes in the Greek, armed robbers who took what they wanted by force. Even took the clothes that he was wearing. But here comes, after they left him on the, the side of the, the road to die, here comes somebody who can help. Look at verse 31. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And it wouldn't have been uncommon for a priest to be on that road because According to one source, no less than 1,200 or 12,000 priests and Levites lived in Jericho. So they would have been required to make this journey going back and forth to take their rotation for the priestly duties. And the sacrificial system, again, is at the heart of worship. They're responsible for receiving these sacrifices from the people, examining the sacrifices, presenting them on behalf of the people to God. That's what the priests were responsible for, representing the people before God, serving as mediators between God and his people and here's the representative of the people coming across one of the people that he represented. Maybe even one of the people that he would have received the sacrifice from to present it to the Lord. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Purposefully avoided him. And there's all kinds of reasons that people imagine why a priest would have avoided him. You know, maybe he's worried about being defiled ceremonially worried about being attacked if he stopped to help because like hey, if this guy's attacked maybe the attackers are nearby maybe considering that this one was one who's judged by God and I don't want to interfere with the judgment of God but whatever the reason is we can all agree that this is just not loving because if you're left on the side of the road hanging on to life you want somebody to come and help you especially from someone you believe represented you before the Lord it's like coming home from a, a Sunday at church and you get mugged and I just kind of wave to you on the side of the road and keep going. It's like, it's, it's unloving. I will not be coming back to this church, <laughs> right? <laughs> Somebody who could help doesn't help. It's the priest. Next you have the Levite in verse 32. It says, likewise, the Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The Levites were the tribe of Israel that was appointed by God to minister alongside of the priests. Priests were selected out of the tribe of Levi, and the Levites took care of the, the temple service. They, they took care of the, the furniture, the, the implements used for worship, the temple itself. They would have been assistants to the priest. And a portion of the tithe from Israel actually went to support the Levites for their service. So this man on the side of the road, his support actually helped to pay the salary for the Levites. And when he saw him, he also passed him by on the other side of the road. This would be like one of the deacons saw you after you got mugged, and he waves to you from the other side of the road, and he keeps going. They will not be deacons here any longer if they do that, right? And the bottom line is that it's not loving, because you wouldn't want this to be done to you. And then along the same road comes a Samaritan. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him. And right there, if you were a Jewish person listening to this for the first time, you're thinking, here comes the Samaritan to finish him off. Like, this is it. I mean, if the, the priest and the Levite passed him up, just wait until the Samaritan gets a hold of him. Like, this is it. He's coming to finish him off, to do him in. Samaritans were despised by the Jewish people. They were descended from a mixture of Jewish people who left, were left behind after the northern tribes were conquered by Assyria back in 722 B.C., and the Jews who were not deported mixed in with the Gentile nations around them and became a mixed people. And after the Babylonian exile in the south, when the Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, guess who opposed the work? It was the Samaritans who opposed the work. Nehemiah chapter 4, if you remember the name Sanballat, he was a Samaritan. 
Nehemiah 4 verse 1, now it came about when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious, very angry, mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers, the wealthy men of Samaria, and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? And he went out to oppose the work of the people of God. The Samaritans developed their own system of worship, established their own place of worship in Mount Gerizim, considered the worship of Jerusalem to be false worship. Remember when uh, Jesus came to the woman at the well? You know, well, the Samaritans say we should worship here, and you Jews say we should worship there. Where's the right place to worship? They had their own place of worship, and it was an abomination to the Lord. In uh, 86, 6 AD, a group of Samaritans desecrated the temple by spreading human bones within the temple and its porches and sanctuary during a Passover. That's what the Samaritans did. And as you can imagine, the tensions between the Samaritans and the Jewish people would have been high and all-time high. I mean, 6 AD would have been just after Jesus would have been born, so all of this would have been fresh in their minds. I remember when the Samaritans came in and threw human bones in our temple. There's no way I'm even walking through Samaria. I don't want the dust of their ground to touch my feet. I will make my way around Samaria. I'm not going through Samaria. The Jews wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. And if the Jewish people really wanted to put you down, they'd call you a Samaritan. John 8, 48, the Jews answered and said to Jesus, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's like the worst put down you could imagine. You, you're a, a demon-possessed Samaritan. Well, you can't get any worse than that. So introducing the Samaritan to the story would have evoked all kinds of feelings of hostility. And the expectation would have been, this is the final blow for this traveler. This is it. But Luke 10 and verse 33 says, the Samaritan was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. That word compassion, it's a splank nidzomai, and I know that means a whole lot to you, doesn't it? Splank nidzomai. It, it comes from a word that refers to the guts, the bowels, the intestines, and it describes the, the turning of the stomach when your emotions are stirred. You, you ever, ever uh, you know, uh, see somebody in danger and it's almost like your stomach just starts turning for them, like somebody almost is in an accident and your stomach starts turning over. Like, like that's the, the, the description here. So instead of moving away, he, he came to him. He bandaged up his wounds. And where did he find bandages in this desolate place? It would have been by ripping strips from his own clothing. I'll rip up my own clothing so that I can bandage you up and stop the bleeding. He poured oil. This was oil that he would have used for his own purposes, out of his own supply, whether it was for food or some other purpose. He had his own oil, and he used that oil to soothe the skin. Poured oil and wine on it. The, the wine would have been used as a disinfectant. He, he just poured it lavishly upon him to cleanse the wounds. And then he put him on his own beast, which means that if he was traveling on the beast, guess who's walking now? He's walking. I'll put you on the beast and I'll walk by you and even carry what the beast might have had so that we can get you to a place of safety. And then he brought him to an inn so that the inn could take care of him. No, that's not what it says. He brought him to the inn and then he took care of him. He personally nurses him through the night and ministers to his need. All through the night, he was there with this traveler. Luke 10, 35, on the next day, he stayed there all night took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. A denarius would have been a full day's wages. We learned that from the parable of the, the laborers in the vineyard in Matthew 20. Estimated that two denarii would have been enough for one to two months of lodging in an inn. I mean, this is rough, rugged, but it's a place to stay. And he says, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I'll pay you all. Basically, he says, I'm going to leave you with my credit card and the security code on the back, and you just take care of whatever expenses you need to for this guy. Just do whatever you need to. And don't forget that this is all not for a friend. This is for an enemy. This is for an enemy. 
It's like Hamas finding a wounded Israeli soldier and saying, I'll take care of him and put all of his expenses on my account. And all of this is the background that leads us to the question in verse 36 that Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? That's the question. He's showing you how deep the water is if you want to go the path of works righteousness to get to eternal life. Like this is the kind of love that we're talking about. And not to a friend. I'm talking about to enemies. This is the kind of love that we're talking about. And how many of us have done that? So here he is. He asks him, which one of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? You want to know who a neighbor is? I want to ask you, who have you been a neighbor to? It's an impossible standard. It's an impossible standard. None of us have met this. None of us meet this now. And we're saved. (laughs) We don't meet this standard. It's an impossible standard to meet. And how does he answer? He said, the one who showed mercy toward him. But when Jesus is asking this question, he's basically asking the same question that he did before. How does the law read to you? So now he's just given an explanation of the law. This is the kind of love that I'm talking about. Is this what you do? This is the kind of assistance that we might lend to a friend, but not to an enemy. And if that's the standard, none of us meets the standard. And let me also remind you of this, that if you've stumbled in one point, you're guilty of breaking this law. So the lawyer, like I said, he gives the right answer. It's impressive. It's the one who showed mercy to him. Which is why I say, none of us are good enough to be a good Samaritan. You're not good enough to be a good Samaritan. He gives this impressive answer. It's the one who showed mercy to him. But none of us are worthy enough. None of us match this. None of us should use the term good Samaritan to refer to acts of kindness that you've done. You know, I'm the good Samaritan. Yeah, right. I saw an article about a person who donated 25 to 50 burgers for dogs at a humane society, and the article referred to the person as a good Samaritan. He gave 25 to 50 burgers to dogs, feeding stray dogs, and I'm a good Samaritan. Do you think that any of that is going to be enough to get you into the kingdom of God? This is being willing to sacrifice yourself even for your sworn enemy. It's a perfect love. It's consistent love. It's sacrificial love. It's love for your neighbors. It's love for your enemies. And this is not an allegory, but there is only one person who would qualify to be a good Samaritan, and it would be Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who loved God and loved his neighbor perfectly and consistently and limitlessly. He's the one who gave up his life and paid for all of our expenses. I'll pay for whatever they need. Put it on my account. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's the one who could only be the one considered a good Samaritan. He's the only one who's loved like this. There's never been a love like this before. And there's never been a love like this since. Jesus Christ is the only one who matches this. Romans 5, 6 says, While we were still helpless... While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is what Jesus has done. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And put their sins on my account. Put it on my tab. I'll pay for them for whatever they need. Like I said, this is not an allegory, but Jesus is the only one who matches the standard. And that's why if you're going to get to heaven, it has to be through him. I have to, I have to be attached to him. I have to be united to him because he's the only one that matches the standard. It's not going to be anything that I do. I mean, feed all the dogs you want. You're not getting there. Then you have this most impenetrable command in verse 37. He says, Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And you walk away from this and you say, what? what? What is Jesus doing here? I mean, this is the point where you say, you can't do it. Let me give you the gospel. Let me tell you what I've come for. I've come to be the perfect sacrifice and live the life you can't live. I mean, this is the point where that comes in, doesn't it, Jesus? 
But no, what is Jesus saying? He says, go and do the same. Walter Chantry, in his excellent little book, Today's Gospel, talks about a similar encounter, the encounter with the rich young ruler. And he says, aren't you a little disappointed to see Jesus handling this tender soul so roughly? How could our Lord use such obviously poor tactics with a sinner? And he allowed the fish to get away. Didn't he know how to lead a soul to himself? Here you have a guy who comes to you, he asks you, how do I get eternal life? And you direct him to the law? And then you tell him this story about this, you know, person who got mugged on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. I mean, Lord, what are you doing here? I mean, that's like telling the, the guy who wants to hike to Honolulu, like, hey, let me tell you where you can get your wetsuit. Like, like Lord, why would you do this? You can't inherit eternal life by your obedience. You don't think the Lord knows that? <laughs> You don't think the Lord knows that? Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. What was this man trying to do? Justify himself. And the scripture says that you can't be justified by your works. Because through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law just lets me know how guilty I am. That's what the law does. It's the law that condemns me. It's the law that puts me to death. Romans 7, 9 says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. As soon as I understood the commands of the law of God, I died. Uh, the law condemns me. It slays me. It kills me. Didn't he know how to lead a soul to himself? Jesus, why are why aren't you telling him about the other way? It's because at this point, he wasn't ready for another way. He was seeking to justify himself, and Jesus was trying to point out his sin. You, you don't even know the first part of the gospel yet. You're not ready to receive the bad news. You're still trying to justify yourself, saying, I'm okay. Chantry uh, goes on to say, normal evangelistic practice is swiftly to run to the cross, of Christ, but the cross means nothing apart from the law. On the cross, Jesus was satisfying the just demands of the law against sinners. If sinners are unaware of the law's requirements for themselves, they will see no personal significance in Christ's broken body and shed blood. Without knowledge of condemnation of God's holy law, the cross will draw sympathy but not saving faith from sinners. And then he goes on to say, What sense was there in offering the man salvation when he had only a vague awareness of his danger? Like you're saying, hey, hey, you can be saved, rescue's coming, but I don't even know I'm in danger yet. Though he had doubts that he would inherit eternal life, he certainly didn't think of himself as a lawbreaker. But sin is a transgression of the law, and Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And you see that's consistent with how Jesus approached people. Basically saying, if, if, if you don't think that you're blind, I mean, there's no need to tell you about the light. You don't even know that you're blind. You're not even willing to admit that you're a sinner. You're not willing to admit that you need help. And until the moralist could see his soul in the light of God's law, he was unprepared for the gospel. When Jesus spoke with Nicodemus, Jesus, in that same passage, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He gave that to Nicodemus. Why? Because Nicodemus says, there's no way that I could do this. Can I go back again and enter into my mother's womb? I can't make up for the life that I've already lived. How can I be born again? Nicodemus admits that he's in trouble. I can't do this. What in the world could I do to possibly be born again? Nicodemus was humbled, and Jesus told him about the path of eternal life. But when Jesus speaks to this lawyer who's seeking to justify himself, he says, well, how does the law read to you? Uh, you think you can get there that way? It's going to be a long road. It's going to be a mighty long swim. But I'll be right here when you need me. When, when, when you're willing to admit that I can't do it anymore, I'll be right here with the message of the truth. He was seeking to justify himself. So Jesus just piled the law on top of him. If you think you can do it, just keep, keep going. Keep going. You're, you're not ready for the gospel yet. You're not ready for the good news. 
you're not even willing to admit that you're a sinner. The parable of the Good Samaritan is not primarily about loving your neighbor, although we should love our neighbors. That's a secondary application that we can take from this, but it's not the primary point. It's meant to show us that we can't get to heaven by loving our neighbors because you don't love like this. None of you love like this. It's meant to show us that we can't get to heaven that way. We're not good enough to be good Samaritans. Instead, we should be humbled by the law and allow the law like a tutor to lead us to Christ because it's only in Christ that we can find salvation. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, so much for uh, this time that we've had together in your word. Uh, Father, I pray that your word would speak to us, that your word would challenge us. If there's anybody here who's still thinking they could make their way across the ocean, can jump to the moon, Father, I pray that they would be smitten, that they would realize that there's no possible way that I could use this as some kind of justification before the Lord. Because I don't love like this. I'm nowhere close to loving like this. I don't love God perfectly. I don't love my neighbor perfectly. I'm in violation of the law of God. And I need help. And I should be beating my breast saying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. There's no possible way that I could match this standard. But Father, I I pray that you would open up eyes to that truth. Father, we know that only you can do it. May you have mercy. And for those of us who do love you, my Father, I pray that we would recognize that we don't love you as we ought, and we're always in need of your mercy, but thank God, thank you, that we've received mercy, mercy upon mercy, grace upon grace, and it's only come through Jesus Christ. My Father, may you be glorified and honored, even on this day, through our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, we give you thanks, amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.